In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Derek Reimer and I talk about how he built a launch list of 5,900 people and how he's been grinding out customer development on his new effort, Level. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 429. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Derek. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where this week, Derek? Oh, you know, just in the startup trenches doing, uh, doing some customer onboarding calls. Yeah. How, uh, how many calls have you done this week? Uh, so far I've done seven and I have, yeah, I have like 11 or 12 booked, I think right now. So very nice. Yeah. So reached a, reached a milestone this week. Feels good to finally be in the realm of kind of getting the product into the hands of potential customers and having those awkward conversations about, so when do you want to start paying for this thing? And, but it feels, feels good to be in this realm. Yeah, that's cool. And you've been, I mean, you've been working on level now for nine months, right? Nine or 10 months. So it's, yeah, it's a yeah. long road to get to this, this place, even for those like yourself who've done, who've done it a few times before, you know? Yeah. It's kind of unbelievable when I look back at, at the timeline and when, I mean, depending on how you look at it, it's, some would say that's a really short amount of time to go from nothing to a product that is potentially viable. But on the same token, I'm just, I'm ever impatient and feel like, man, it's been an eternity. Right. And you've been able to work full time on it, which is a luxury a lot of people don't have, right? Not, you can imagine doing this nights and weekends trying to get oh here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. You've, I know yeah. you've, you've been there. So yeah, you remember how it was. Totally. Well, cool. We're going to dive in today to, you know, your story. We're actually going to catch folks up because last time you were on the show was in July. It was episode 399. And we talked about how you were validating the idea of level and how you started gathering, having people reserve their handles to build your, your pre-launch list. Today, we're going to continue that story. We're going to talk about where you've been since then, tell the story of the, the kind of the major milestones you hit through the rest of 2018 and pull out the learnings from those so folks listening can see how, you know, an experienced founder like yourself has has taken on this challenge of of building essentially a competitor to Slack, you know, which is a, an app that has a lot of momentum yeah. and trying to thread a, a usability needle and, and have a different use case that, that works better for uh, development teams. But before we dive in, uh, I want to talk about an AppSumo contest that's happening where AppSumo is going to pay for an all-expense paid trip to both MicroConfs, MicroConf Starter Edition and Growth in late March. And uh, we'll link that up in the show notes, but they've graciously sponsored this podcast and are going to be uh, giving somebody a, a trip to, to both of those. So you could be a lucky winner, Derek. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's because it's open to anyone, even if people have purchased a ticket, right? Like Exactly. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll refund your ticket if you win. So I don't know. I think, I don't think it's open to me, but I'm tempted to apply. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I, I definitely jumped on that. I, if I, if there was a call to action in that email, I sure, I think I clicked it. And yeah, I'm not sure how that would look if I won it, but you know, here's to hoping. <laughs> I know, I know. Just know that I'm totally not involved in the selection process. I have no idea what's going on. So that, that giveaway ends uh, February 11th, which is what another week or two after this goes live. So check it out if you haven't. So cool. So you were here in July and you and I were talking before the show, kind of laying out some, you know, some milestones that happened since then. I know you were, you were heads down, you were in pretty hardcore design mode of trying to figure out what are these screens going to look like? How am I going to architect the inbox? You know, how do you how do you compete with Slack in a way that is less 
less invasive, right? Less interruptive. Yep. I mean, that's the the promise of Level. And for folks who who want a good, you know, explanation of it, you go to Level.app, and it's uh, your headline there: Team Communication Optimized for Deep Work. And so in September, you were telling me, you know, you had, you came to a fork in the road in terms of this, you were writing some code, I believe, but you were kind of trying to decide like the hardest part of this app to design really is, is probably the inbox, you know, from a usability perspective, you just have to get it right. And so talk to us about where where you were in September. Yeah. So, I mean, up until that point, it's funny now looking back, like, why did it take me so long to get to where I am today? And I think a big part of that was like, I spent a few months at the, at the front end, just focusing mostly on getting familiar, comfortable with the tech stack. You know, this is a, this is an application that has a lot of real time stuff. It will eventually need offline support, web sockets, like, you know, just a very different type of application than ones I've built before. So spent a lot of time getting familiar with, with tech stack and also was had kind of a, a general vision in my head of what, how the product should work. Like I could just kind of picture how it would feel, but it is, it's interesting how once you get to from the phase of like, I have the vision for this thing and how it should function and how it should not interrupt people like Slack does to actually getting down to the implementation, there's a big gap there. And so I, I definitely ran up against like, in theory, I know this is how it should work, but it's actually a really hard problem to solve to strike just the right balance. And so I think, yeah, we were, we were sitting on your rooftop, September, I was sipping some scotch and I was like, Rob, what am I going to do? Uh, <laughs> what should I do? Should I, you know, should I spend time doing another round of calls with potential customers, try to put together some wireframes and some mockups and, and show it to them and kind of cast a vision for how it's going to work and potentially get responses like, yeah, looks cool. <laughs> or do I take the route of just spending some time writing some code and implementing what I feel is my best guess at how it should function according to what, you know, my own experience and what I've heard from others, which to me at the time felt risky because I know that that, that big trap that a lot of people fall into is go in the basement, code for months, emerge, and potentially be missing the mark. So I've been very like careful and uh, almost a little bit paranoid not to fall into that trap, even though it's, just, it's still really hard, even after having a few apps under your belt. And so that was kind of the, that was kind of the crossroads. Yep. And it's never clear cut. I mean, you and I sat and tried to look at like, what are the options here and, and what are the drawbacks? Because you don't want to fall into the, exactly that trap. Like the con- conventional wisdom says, do more customer development up front, have a lot of conversations, don't waste time writing a bunch of code. You know, it's like, get, get it all settled out up front. But it seemed like your gut feel and, and mine, in essence, too, was by the time I get to the end of that conversation, it's like your intuition of what it should be, since you're kind of trying to invent something new or at least innovate enough on in a medium that it's chat, but you're trying to do it differently. And it's like, I'm not sure that having conversations with people about mock-ups is, is going to get you there. And that's where... It wasn't like you should absolutely do A or B. It was more like we both by the end kind of leaned towards go build something because until someone touches it and clicks a button and even if it's a fake simulated chat with an invisible person with a bot or whatever, at least they'll get an idea of like, oh, no, that doesn't make sense at all or oh, it does. And in a way that I don't know, you kind of can't get your hands on mock-ups the way that you can with some code. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think about like, you know, if, Steve Jobs would have taken, you know, some wireframes or the iPhone and showed it to people. I mean, I, I don't know if that would have 
really would, would people have caught the magic? I don't think so. It would have looked like an interesting concept. Oh, it's a phone that you can web browse on and have all these apps and these games like hmm, interesting. But like it's just it's hard to represent the user experience aspect of it, which I think is for level is a really big a really big thing. Like it just has to feel right to people as opposed to some other apps where like it has this very specific, you know, utilitarian purpose. And as long as it can deliver on this purpose, then it will be good. Like level's not necessarily good. Even if it delivers on the purpose, it also has to feel right. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to touch on the thing you said about Steve Jobs, because I think, I feel like some people will throw that around and almost it's like, he's also an exception, you know, Henry Ford talks about the model T and the being a faster horse or whatever, which I think is actually apocryphal. I'm not sure that he ever, ever said that, but, but the idea is that, Oh, I've, I'm an innovator and I know better. I'm never going to show stuff to customers. And that's what has gotten people into the, you know, two years of coding in your basement thing. So it's one, one I think is it's knowing your strengths and you happen to have really solid strengths in app usability and design and, I think both you and I were like, you're probably going to do a better job of this than most people we know. So take a flyer on it. And two, I think it's it's a gut feel. It's like, how strongly do you feel that you that you know what's better in this space? You know, are you kind of, are you like, Oof, I don't really know the solution and I truly do need the input of 10 or 20 potential customers, then, then go do that. It didn't seem like you needed that. That's what we were pulling out, you know, was like, you had enough of an image in your head of what you wanted to do that we, we thought it was worth the gamble is how it felt, right? Yeah. And I think that this is also one of the other things that kind of complicates getting that type of feedback from wireframes for level was that it's the type of product where if someone came and asked me, here's what I'm thinking for a new tool that solves this problem. What do you think? I would be like, I I don't know if I could answer that very accurately either. Because I'd be like, well, it just depends. It depends on if I use it for two weeks, go through my day and a bunch of stuff isn't falling through the cracks. Or do I truly feel like I am able to retain focus better? Or am I constantly drawn to go check it? Like there's a whole story that has to come together. And like, I don't know if I'm imaginative enough to be able to answer with confidence, like, yep, I think you nailed it. You know, all, all startups have some type of risk, right? Whether it's market risk or technology risk, or you have like, it's almost UX risk or threading the needle of being, you know, that's the, that's the riskiest thing. We know you can build the app and you're probably going to market it pretty well. I mean, I think there is some market risk in terms of is the market of people who don't like being interrupted by Slack, how large is that market? You know, so that's like an open question, but that's, that's one that's very, very hard to answer until you build something cool right now. So at that point, you made the decision to not have more conversations and not build mockups and you got to Coden there in September. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then October, you did uh, your early access phase, or it was like early, early, pre-early access or something, right? Yeah. So I basically, because I had already been building foundations leading up to that point. So then it was just like locking in some decisions around how the inbox works and some of the other elements in the product. And so I was only really a few weeks away from being able to kind of show it to people. And, you know, that phase, now looking back, it was it was very early and it would have been a pretty big ask to have any teams really like switch off of their existing tooling and use this because there are just elements that people had come to expect in a communication tool that were just not present in level. So I got good, good feedback, a good amount of like, Hey, this feels a little bit off or this, this kind of thing worked janky when I used it, it might be a bug. And so it was, it was valuable in a lot of ways, but ultimately it was not, it didn't provide all the value that I hoped it would. You know, I kind of 
at one point hoped that some people would actually switch switch off their existing tools and then it became clear that it just wasn't it wasn't there yet there was still more that needed to be built that's interesting so you showed it to customers you got some feedback but you felt like it wasn't it probably maybe wasn't worth it like you didn't get enough feedback to warrant all the all the time at that point yeah yeah and i think and it kind of comes back to that analogy of like what is an mvp is it a is it a half built product or is it just a simplified version of a product that will eventually grow into a more full featured thing and i think at that phase it was a bicycle missing missing a wheel <laughs> Right. Rather than a scooter or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. And so then we'll, you know, we jump ahead to November and that was when you decided to set a public launch date. It was a public launch date, but it was of, yeah, essentially of a minimal viable product that you thought teams could use. You set that date for January 21st, which is, you know, a few days ago now, what made you decide to put a stake in the ground in November and set a date? Yeah, so there were there were a few things leading to that. One, it's just like I was becoming really impatient with it not moving to that next phase. And so part of it was for my own psychology, like I wanted to have this date set. And I think I was I actually was kind of inspired. We were interviewing Paul Jarvis, who just released a, a book in January. Company of One. Company of One. Really good, really good read. And uh he he was kind of doing his you know, press tour for that promotions and stuff. And so I remember seeing the everywhere, everywhere that he was showing up, he was talking about, you know, the book is coming January 15th or whatever it was. And, you know, I, I'm sure that's kind of an artifact of just like weird publishing schedules and working with traditional publishers and stuff. But it kind of like inspired me like I, it would be kind of nice if I could be talking about level and, and have a date, you know, there, there's a date that it's coming. And so start building momentum up to that partially for myself, partially for, people who are following the story and getting excited about it. Like I wanted to, I was ready to give something a little bit more into the kind of the, the public conversation. So that was, that was a big piece of it. And I also wanted to, I've been toying with the idea of doing pre-sales for the product. And, you know, some people are more aggressive with this than others. Some people, as soon as they have the idea, they're asking for money right away. And I think, I don't know, I feel like that's just something you kind of have to take on a on a case by case, founder by founder, what you're comfortable with, what market you're in, so on. But for me, I felt like to be most comfortable asking for money, I wanted to have like a date that I could use and say, like, if you put down a deposit today for level, you will get access guaranteed by this date. And so that was that was another big piece of the motivation. Yeah, I could see that. In retrospect, do you think it was a good decision to set that date? Yeah, I think it was great. I mean, no regrets on that. I actually probably could have pushed it earlier. Because leading up, I mean, there were definitely things that I've, as always happens with launches, a few days before, I'm like, ooh, it'd be nice to get that in. So I was, you know, I was working around the clock a few days leading up to Monday, slipping in things that were just like, I would really love to have this when I'm demoing the product. I want this part to really shine. So I definitely, you know, procrastinated a little bit, but I think I could have, I could have probably pushed it even a little bit earlier. You know, being close to the holidays and stuff, I just wasn't sure how hosed my work schedule would be over that period of time. But yeah, I think it's just the value of having a public deadline is that there's many benefits to it. So no regrets. What did it do for you? Did it just motivate you kind of like, I have to get this done. So either I'm going to work more or cut scope. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really, it's a really good forcing function for bringing clarity. I fall into this trap all the time. I think it's as someone who's really you know, I pay close attention to detail about stuff and I'm very particular about, 
UX, I could easily just keep iterating on small pieces and burn hours on that. And I definitely have done my fair share of that even still with all these kind of pressures I put on myself to keep focused on, on the most important things. But I think, um, you know, deadline is, is even more of a forcing function than just, uh, just me telling myself to stay focused. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like one of the purposes of deadlines in our space is that people who build great products almost without exception are perfectionists and they never think it's good enough because their taste in products is so high. That's how they know how to, that's how they know when it's good because their taste is good. But if your taste is good, you don't want to put something crappy out, you know? And so, and to you, crappy is like things that everyone else looks at and says, oh, that's so amazing and gorgeous. And it's like, no, the one, it's one pixel off of this and that. And so at a certain point you set a date and you just force yourself to do it. We've done this a couple times already with Tiny Seed where, you know, we just up and decided to announce in, in October and then, We've just, you know, we've kind of set a, a forcing function of getting this first batch uh, at least picked out before microconf, which is end of March, and that feels incredibly ambitious. And I stress about that every day, <laughs> every day. But it's good. It's made me motivated. It hasn't made me work more hours, but it's making me be way more focused on the on the important things and anything that's not getting me closer or getting us closer to that objective. I'm like just putting on the side. So I, I, th- I think it's good. That's why I like, yeah, like the, there's, you know, the concept of healthy stress, which is, you know, been well studied and like that's, there is a certain amount of stress that's good. Right. And, and I think it's, it's kind of like that, that base camp mentality. They talk a lot about how they work and how they set these six week cycles. And I mean, at first when I, when I heard base camp has deadlines, that seems opposite of what, how they work. You know, I thought they're, I thought they work calmly and work at a natural cadence and not overly stressed, but once you dig into kind of their philosophy around that, it's like, no, we, we set deadlines and then we cut scope around those deadlines. We don't, we don't burn ourselves out or make people toxically stressed and pack in a bunch of work that's unrealistic. We just pull the other levers to make it happen. And so that's what kind of I found like this. I'm either going to work around the clock, obsess about every single detail and try to pack in a bunch of features, or I'm just going to set aside my compulsion to perfect everything and just focus on the most important stuff. Cool. And then in November also, you mentioned you did a pre-sale in essence. And what was the what was the purpose behind that? Yeah. So I'd wanted to do that for a while and then kind of setting this deadline made in my mind made it kind of feasible to to propose this to the public. And my rationale was I wanted to figure out, you know, of the at that point it was probably close to four thousand people on the the launch list who had reserved a handle on level and that's a lot of people and there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are supportive i'm doing a lot of working in public on twitter and stuff sharing my work and so there's there's quite a few people who seem to really be following along with the story and glad that it's happening but that still doesn't necessarily translate to you know who's actually feeling the pain enough to hand over their hard-earned dollars for a solution. So for me, this was like getting that that set of people who are most feeling the pain, most willing to pay. And those are the ones that I want to be getting into the product first and hearing their feedback and kind of then building off of that. Right. And it's a good, it's a good filter in essence, you know, is what you're saying. And you just picked the number out of the air. If I recall, it was like four, it's $48, which is six times your per seat pricing. You have a, it's eight bucks a seat, right? Yep. Right. And how many pre-orders did you get? Or what, I guess what your, what was your total pre-order amount? I'm curious. Yeah, I think it was around twenty five hundred dollars. I'm not, not good at mental arithmetic. It was, I think it was fifty five or fifty six people who ended up buying the pre order. So cool. Were you happy with that? Did you have a number in your head in advance? 
yeah, I, I didn't really know how to, how to declare success or failure on that, but I felt happy with it. I felt like, you know, if I got, I don't know, if I got 20 people, I was going to be happy. So, so that, that felt good to me. Cool. And then let, let's jump forward because it sounds like the holidays, December was a lot of coding and even early January, you were heads down. You're just trying to get stuff done, meet this deadline. And so here we are, we're recording the week of the 21st, uh, even though it's going to go live next week. But you talked about doing seven calls so far and you have another half dozen or so scheduled. How How is it feeling? Do you feel like you, you know, the products, you know, at the point where it's a good time to do it? Are you getting a lot of value out of this or is it is it still too early to tell? So I'm, I'm feeling overall positive about it. I think I had to kind of temper my expectations because the switching cost for a lot of organizations is pretty high. Like for better or worse, Slack kind of starts out as just a, a place for humans to talk to each other within an organization. And then gradually some organizations decide to kind of turn it into this place that runs a bunch of their internal workflows. Like, you know, maybe the sales team relies on it for for leads to come through into a specific Slack channel, which then they can follow up with. So, so for some, some people I've talked to, it's proven that like, okay, this is going to be a long, this is going to be a longer process. Overall, like the response has been positive, even from those who have a more complicated setup, you know, it's still like, Ooh, this product looks really interesting. I'm intrigued. But the, the gap between me being intrigued as the, the champion in my organization and us actually switching over to it, for some, the gap is, is pretty big. So I think it's a reminder to me that I need to be patient and just set my expectations properly. And it's also like another artifact of this is that level is most is going to be most impactful for teams that are a little bit larger. Like really small teams just don't feel a lot of the pain that teams that are growing start to feel when Slack really becomes unwieldy. So that's kind of another thing that I'm keeping in the back of my mind, like set those expectations properly. But I think I am, I'm really feeling positive about this model of kind of staying in, in the zone of vetting people who come into the funnel that ultimately make it into a demo with me who ultimately get into the product to try it out as opposed to kind of doing the big splash public launch, let in a bunch of people, get a big spike of interest, and then a majority of them churn out and probably send in feedback along the way that I don't really know if I can trust because I don't know if they were a good fit in the first place. Yeah, it's going more after the superhuman model, right? Maybe the, yeah, the, the exactly. heavy customer onboarding. Derek, do you remember a day, maybe five, 10 years ago, where you dreamt of just building a self-service software product and it just paid your bills, right? Isn't that why you got into this? I think so. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, my very first product that I remember throwing something together. And then I literally Googled like, oh, how do I get customers? I, I just thought they would come. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now here you are doing like heavy, heavy, you know, handholding onboarding and conversations and it's good stuff. It's just crazy how it changes, you know, it, it changes. And it, especially as your goals change too, I think like trying to build, you want to build something great and you want to build something that I'll say is, is a, you know, a decent size company, you know, whatever that means to people. And it's like to do that, I just don't know if you can do that anymore, trying to go no touch, you know, it's really hard or I, I, I shouldn't say you can't, but it's, it's really going to be one in a million or something to, to just thread that needle and have the Cinderella story. You're putting in the work, right? I mean, this is, this is what it's about. Yeah. 
I feel like the no touch, you know, the no touch phase will come. I feel like once the product market fit is extremely tight, you know, and I feel like, like everything I'm doing now. And of course I didn't come up with any of this. This is, you know, these are things that people talk about, but like going through this, this phase of intense handholding, keeping the, the filters on really strong. So like for this round of folks of the people who put in a pre-order, I sent them a questionnaire, asked a bunch of questions about what are their current problems in more detail with chat? What tools are they using? How big is their team? What are these for project management? How does, what does email look like in their company? Just a bunch of things that I felt like would be good inputs into me understanding their use case and being able to, to kind of cater my demo to them and set my own expectations on what, what I expect from them. And not everyone has submitted that questionnaire. And so not everyone got a Calendly link to get on my calendar to then get into the product yet. You know, I'll keep nudging the the other people who have pre-ordered and haven't done that yet. But like, I want to keep the filters really tight because what that does is ensures that I'm getting only quality, you know, the best quality feedback that I can possibly get to then hopefully lead to more of these folks coming through the pipeline and getting just kind of tighter product market fit. Yep. So you're putting in the kind of grinding out the customer development now so that later on you have that fit and you know that you can market it and self-service it. It's, it's a good way to think about it. I mean, if you think about it, it mirrors very closely what we did in the early days of Drip. You were off coding and I was doing what you're doing. I was either having calls or doing videos so that you could keep moving full speed. And in this case, you have to do both, right? Because you're, you know, you're a single founder. But And it led to us building what I would I'm pretty proud of what we built, you know, with Trip. Like it had product market fit. Once we nailed that and growth really kicked in. So I think it's a good, good kind of uh, analogy or parallel thought there. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that you've done well is you've built up this this launch list of, you know, it's almost fifty nine hundred email addresses. It's people who've wanted to reserve their handle and they probably want to follow along and might want to use level. You know, there's all, all the reasons. But I'm curious, you know, for for listeners out there who haven't built a launch list yet. The first question is kind of like, what's the value of that launch list? It's probably pretty obvious, but you know, talk through that a little bit. And then B, how, how did you do that? I know you have a podcast, Art of Product. We should plug it here. Folks want to hear two software founders who are getting shit done and building interesting products. They talk every week, uh, you and your, your co-host, Ben. That's artofproductpodcast.com. You know, so you have a podcast, but that certainly is not, that didn't get you 5,900 handles. So talk to us about the, you know, the value you see in it and why you've spent the time to build it and then talk through a couple things you've done to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I think the benefits of having that email list, it's talked about a bunch. Like it just, you're going to have a certain conversion rate on your list ultimately. So the larger you can grow that list, hopefully the more customers you'll have come out the other end. So like to me, it's, you know, and, and when it's really early, it's like, I don't know how well qualified everyone is on that list, but I know that right now I want, I wanted that to be a very wide top of funnel, just get people onto a list so that they can have a chance of hearing about what I'm up to and then hopefully converting if they're kind of in the camp of, of a good ideal fit. So the, what really kind of cranked up the number of people submitting the form was adding that scarcity piece, the, the reserving a handle. And when I did that, I mean, I think it obviously has to fit with the the kind of application that you have. So if you don't have something where there will be a username, then it wouldn't make sense to do that. But I think, I don't know, introducing some element of scarcity is just enough to push a lot of people over to like, well, I don't really know, but I'll at least drop my email in this because I'm they're getting some kind of perceived value 
in addition to just like getting email updates. And so I think that, I mean, that instantly started sending, I actually don't have great historical metrics on like conversion rate of hitting the the homepage to submitting, but my traffic is not that huge right now. So it's a pretty high percentage of people who land on the, on the homepage will submit that form. So yeah, I think, you know, traffic has not it's not like I have a huge amount of traffic coming to the website, but if I look into my analytics, I think a majority of people are either coming from Twitter, links on Twitter to, to level, which is where I'm predominantly kind of talking about in the open what I'm working on on day to day and just direct. So people who either hear about it on the podcast or hear about it from someone else in person or whatever, just typing in level.app and coming directly there. So I think... I'm kind of playing long ball with this, but I kind of, you know, from the get go decided I was going to be as open and transparent with the development process as possible. The thinking behind that is just people are interested in kind of following a journey, you know, starting out the level journey with the manifesto. I think that resonated with a lot of people. And so it just kind of gets people curious about how this is going to all come together. And then, you know, in the process of sharing openly what I'm working on, also trying to just be useful to other people. So it's something that like, you know, Adam Wathen and Steve Sugar are really good at with their newly launched refactoring UI. Their kind of core part of their strategy was to, you know, provide hot tips on Twitter and, and just be insanely valuable, giving away a bunch of free knowledge and, and just stuff that is part of their day-to-day work that they can just package up and share in a way that, you know, provides value to other people. And that was insanely effective for them. So I was, I'm kind of like, following that same similar strategy of just trying to trying to share a lot. And I mean, it's I think it's built up a decent amount of people who are just, you know, kind of genuinely interested in the story. And so that kind of leads people to when they sign up for a handle, they are more likely to tweet about it and tell it to their friends. And and that kind of leads to more people signing up. And so it's just kind of a a nice little little flywheel there. Yeah, that's nice. One concern that I have with that approach, especially with SaaS, and that it's different than what Adam and Steve are doing, is that SaaS is a tool and people pay for it on a monthly basis. Whereas Adam and Steve sell info products, right? They sell books and courses on the topics that they're tweeting. So there's a tighter alignment there. So I think their conversion rate will be very, very high. And I think yours will be less. And it, and it was that way when we were doing Drip as, as well. I don't know if you remember, but you know the first 500 people on our email launch list were mostly for me talking about it on this, you know, on this podcast and a couple other places. And the conversion rate on those was far less than the ones that I got from other avenues. So it's not a bad approach, but it might give you a false sense of security, you know? And, and I, don't, I don't think you're kidding yourself and, and thinking that everyone who wants to follow your story is going to sign up for Level. But I want folks at home, you know, if you're listening to this, like, realize there's a difference here. I still think it's a viable approach and it's something I, I would be doing the same. But you have to have it in the back of your head that these people are not going to, probably not going to convert as well as, you know, the whatever. If you're running a targeted ad campaign to only the demographic that gets value out of it, and if they give you their email and they're more of a cold lead, they almost might have a better chance if they re- if that's a real pain point for them versus someone who's listening and just like, oh, I just want to follow along and see how Derek's marketing, right? Yep. No, that's a really good point. And I think it also helps that like one thing that is in my favor that is not universally in people's favor when they're sharing, you know, working out in public and sharing their story is that the people who are potentially good candidates to become level customers are kind of developers, designers, founders. And that's kind of the people that are in my tribe on Twitter. So 
it's like the community that I kind of have access to some degree of access to that are interested in the story. It's kind of like they're interested in the meta story. <laughs> you know, they're, they're interested in the startup journey because they're other startup people. And this just happens to be a tool that is being sold to other startups and founders and stuff like that. So if you're building countertop installer software, like sharing your story to other developers on Twitter, isn't necessarily going to move the needle at all. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. So I'm curious, you know, you had to buckle down at some point, put a stake in the ground and make some hard choices and decisions about the inbox. And this is the, as you've kind of said, it's the most critical part of the app because if it works, it's, it's magical and angels sing down from the heavens. But if it doesn't, then it's just a big, it's a big point of your app that really needs to go well. How did you finally decide to buckle down and just say, I got to make a call on this? Because I know that you've thought about it a lot and it was a, it was a long process there. Yeah. I think it was just like, I don't have any other choice. I have to do this. And I kind of have to just follow my gut instinct and know that I may have to change this. It may not be a perfect implementation. And it's something that I have to fight against because now that I've been through drip and code tree and, you know, all these experiences, like I'm very aware of the cost of, of legacy code and technical debt. So part of me was like, I don't want to write any code unless I'm sure that it's going to not have to change in a significant way. And so I just had to kind of get, get past that a little bit and know that there's always going to be a tension between like writing well-crafted, well-tested code that, you're going to invest a lot of time into making it really rock solid and know that you potentially are going to have to change a bunch of that and rework data models and rip out database tables and do a bunch of data migration or whatever it may be. But it's like ultimately just had to make the call that like, I've got to do this. I've got to get it in the hands of people. And then uh, hopefully the mutations are relatively small and it can just kind of, I can just kind of dial it in with smaller refinements, but also know that, you know, maybe it is larger shifts that need to happen. And how about the experience this time around, you know, in essence, coding your, really, it's it's your third app, but it's like you had two or three before that. So it's like the fifth or sixth project, you know, I mean, you just, you've had a lot of experience doing this. So reflecting on it as someone who has launched and grown things in the past, the last nine or 10 months, when you look back, did it take longer than you thought? Less time than you thought? Yeah, I think my big takeaway is this stuff regardless of your experience, never gets, never gets easy. You know, it gets, it gets easier in some ways, but there are fundamental truths about custom software development that are, that just still hold regardless of how experienced you are. And knowing that there's, there are some of those pitfalls that arise once you have some battle scars. So the first time around in earlier apps, I was probably less, less concerned about scaling challenges, for example, because figuring that, rightly so, that we'll tackle those problems when we get there. And now coming out of an experience with with Drip where there were a ton of scaling challenges, I think I, it's been a difficult thing that I've tried to stay aware of, of not like prematurely optimizing things or planning too much in advance for scale that I don't really, I don't really know what the, what the scaling challenges will look like. So try not to invest too much into over-architecting stuff. So it's kind of like, it, it gets easier in some ways, but then also gets harder in other ways once you have more experience under your belt. Yeah, I made a mistake or just a judgment error after Hittail as we started Drip. I thought that it would go faster because I knew more, you know, I had more experience and more knowledge and 
it didn't. And I remember being very frustrated by that for like a year, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's it. Your mindset and your expectations can really negatively impact your experience of an event. Yeah. And that's what you're saying. Like, don't get overconfident. It, parts of it get easier and you do get better at it, but I don't know that you get faster at it. That's, it is a difference. Like even look at like David Cancel, who's on his fifth or sixth, all have been successful and exited. And right out of the gate, he raised five or 10 or 15 million. It was a huge number right out of the gate as I was starting. And it's still, he's been grinding on drift for years now. And yes, they have traction now, but the first one or two years, it was it was not getting the traction that I would have expected from a, a founder of his experience and caliber. And even, I mean, Jason Cohn with WP Engine, like, yeah, WP Engine's huge now. Remember him like kind of bootstrapping, toiling away on that for like a year and a half, two years before anyone had heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's, uh, when I like look at the product, like I'm trying to keep level very simple and elegant. So I look at the, I look at the product today and, you know, I've been spending a lot of time in it, obviously using it myself. And I'm like this, the mechanics of this feels, feel very simple. And so on the one hand, I think like, why did it take me so long to arrive at something that feels so simple? It feels like given all this time and all this effort, like it should be something that has thousands of dials and tweaks to it. And just like this, this very complicated system, but like, it's actually like you look, just looking at a product that looks simple on the surface uh, doesn't mean that there weren't thousands of hours of thinking and laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling, trying to figure out the most elegant way to execute this. But yeah, it's, it's even hard for me sometimes looking at my own product to say like, why did this take so long? But it just does, you know, because these are, these are hard problems to solve. For sure. Well, sir, I think we're at time. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. If folks want to keep up with Level, that's at level.app. And if they want to hear you talk about it every week, it's artofproductpodcast.com or they can head to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Have you gotten into Spotify yet? We are in Spotify, actually. And that, that just happened. We use Fireside for hosting our podcast and they just did it one day. So like I went in and I'm like, oh, I guess we're in Spotify. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Good for you. I yeah. Folks had been requesting that we get in Spotify and I was kind of like, I don't, how do we do that? And so Mike went and researched it and it appeared that we were going to like, because we self-host on a shared hosting thing with a CDN over it. I mean, we're not, we don't use any of the fancy, you know, big hosts that kind of do it all for you. And it looked like we were going to have to like move hosts and copy all the files and do 301s. And I was like, I'm not sure this is worth it. But as it turns out, we missed a link for the first look around. And so when I submitted our RSS feed 15 minutes later, we were in Spotify. I was like, yes. Yeah, no, totally. Oh. Dodge the bullet. This is great. <laughs> well, thanks again, sir, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. If you have questions for us, call our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.